Please remain standing for our scripture lesson out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 15. Earlier we heard the psalmist speak of the value of the fear of the Lord. We heard Isaiah speak of the shoot of Jesse that would embrace the fear of the Lord. And here Paul speaks about the fear of the Lord. Let's pay attention. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearances and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he who died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who, for their sake, died and was raised. Amen, dear saints. You may be seated. We are continuing in this wonderful and glorious Second Corinthians book, chapter 5, on Reformation Day. The fear of the Lord's a fitting theme, as it was a fearful thing for God to show himself in such glory in those days as he is even today. And I say that not in a bad way, in a good way. God is powerful and wonderful, but he's also wonderfully loving to us in Christ. And because of that, let's go to him now in prayer. Father, thank you that that's true, that you are the loving, great, and fearful God. And we commit our hearts to you on this special Sabbath day, Reformation Day, commemorating what you have done, and you have given us so much, even from that. We bless you for all the wonderful doctrine, the Westminster standards, the blessings of all things in Jesus. And we give you praise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so the Greek word phobos, which is known to almost everybody, phobia, phobos, that's the word used here in verse 11 for fear is really a real strong word. That's a very powerful connotation. In fact, some of you that may have the King James, New King James, I think yours may say the terror of the Lord. Is that right? Okay, so we're talking a terribleness in a good way for the saints of God. Not so much for everyone who doesn't love him, but nonetheless, this fearful, loving God is available to all sinners everywhere, and that's one of the reasons we preach the gospel. We want to glorify God, build up the church, and get that gospel out to the whole world. It is a fearful thing. Now, some people would say, well, that doctrine's too scary. I don't like that. It scares me away. I'm not going to be interested. And I can understand that, and in some ways that might even make sense. Could even be uh, appreciated in a way. But for you, the saints of God, those who have been bought with the blood of the Lamb, who know yourself to be in Christ Jesus, yes, you know your sinners, and that in itself could make you be filled with fear before a holy, perfect, righteous, powerful God. But, even in a bigger, badder, and wonderful way, you know yourselves to be children of God, beloved of the Father, 
bought with the blood of the Son, sealed with the power of the Holy Spirit. Now both of these twin truths, the fear of God and the love of Christ, get collated, as you heard Elder Craig read the passage, saw the fear of God, the love of Christ controls us, they're brought together in a marvelous way, and we're going to see that in today's text. In that light then, let's, with confidence in Jesus Christ alone, make it our aim this resurrection day to fear the Lord in the love of Christ, Looking at 2 Corinthians 5:11-15, I know we have some visitors. If you'd like to use the outline, we start here. The doctrine of this sermon, entitled The Results of the Fear of the Lord, is the fear of the Lord clears out all religious pretense and focuses the church on the truth. And that's good because our problem is pretense. It's so much easier. Uh, lies, easy ways, the way we always do it, our emotions, our passions, our traditions, those things. The fear of God has an effect of just taking a bulldozer from Caterpillar and just wiping it out, getting right down there to the foundation of what really matters, cleansing away all the spiritual compost that stinks to high heaven. God takes that and just plows it away with the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. And it's the fear of God that has this effect. This fear of God, I'm going to explain it to you a little later. I'll help you with it. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. (laughs) No pun intended. Well, maybe it was. But let's go together into this text in a little while and discover how that actually gets worked out. But for now, let's better discern how... The fear of the Lord clears out all religious pretense and focuses the church on the truth. And that's very relevant, isn't it, any time? But here it is, Reformation Sunday. How really pertinent is that for us? First, this is accomplished through ministerial sincerity. M-I-N-I-S-T-E-R-I-A-L. There's frankly, you've got to have an honest minister if you're going to have a successful covenant church life on earth. You'll never have a perfect one, but you have to have an honest one. Paul knew this and understood this, and that's why he said the things that he did about it so often, like he does in today's text. He's just honest about it. He says you have to have an honest minister. But don't be deceived, honest ministers are hard to come by. Anybody knows how to tell people what they want to hear. Everybody with any brains knows what people want to hear. And if you tell them what they want to hear, that's dishonest. If you tell them what they need to hear, must hear, what God would have them hear, whether they like it or not, that's honorable. That's integrity laden. That's pleasing to God. Now having said that, the honest minister then having told the people what they need to hear about their sin, their sin nature, their depravity, they have no goodness, there's no righteousness in them at all, there's absolutely nothing attractive about us before God whatsoever, having told them the truth, then he can honestly comfort the people of God with the glorious grace of the gospel and the soothing balm and anointing work and powerful Spirit of God applying the blood of Jesus to our sins, cleansing those wounds, wiping out the pus, healing the body of Christ. It's a beautiful thing. 
The fear of the Lord makes the love and kindness of God, our Heavenly Father, mean something. You ever thought about that? Listen, you take the fear of God out of the equation, God's love is meaningless. It's cheap. Of course, that isn't true. But if you have no fear of God, no desire to obey Him by the Holy Spirit, love means nothing. But with that, this love and kindness and compassion and tenderness of a gentle, wonderful, benevolent, tender, gushing with love, Heavenly Father, who embraces us with every affection, becomes all the more precious and priceless and valuable to us. The forgiven saints of Christ's redeemed ecclesia. Indeed, it is factual that the fear of the Lord clears out all religious pretense and focuses the church on the truth. This is accomplished through ministerial sincerity. And by the way, we shouldn't be ashamed to admit that and say it. Paul does over and over, and we should too. It's absolutely important. And it results in serious gospel love for God in Christ. Note that gospel love is a love of supernatural wonder and delight. It's a love that relishes the grace, mercy, compassion, kindness, tenderness, affection of a kind, benevolent, powerful, sovereign, heavenly Father who rules and reigns over all. Interestingly, every regenerate sinner saint out there, all of you who are in that position today, you know in your heart the difference between real salvation, forgiveness of sins, redemption, atonement in Jesus Christ and his blood, and the false assurances peddled by pretentious cheap gospels that leave all those glories out and have a weak, if that was possible, God. But again, it's the fear of the Lord which is accomplishing this. Now, what I'm trying to say here in this doctrinal section is something like this. Your Christianity is born out of the context of your preacher's intense concern to relate to you the truth Christ to your hearts and souls through this means of grace called preaching, this ordinary, special, beautiful thing the church gets, the preaching of the gospel, as seen in Paul's words of verse 11a. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Really, for a minister, it's that fear factor that is the motivation for the persuasion factor. And this message, when it is heard and believed, results in a sincere and genuine love for God in Christ Jesus, making verse 14a very sweet to us, For the love of God controls us, an utterance of gospel joy, as he then explains how we're united to Christ in his life and death in verses 14b and 15. Well, let's get into the text, all right? Verses 11 to 15, 2 Corinthians 5, and consider how the fear of the Lord blesses the redeemed church. Now, maybe we don't think of the fear of God blessing us, but we should. Now I'm going to explain to you my own little colloquial definition, practical and helpful for myself and I hope for you, as far as what this fear of God is and what it looks like. So bear with me. I think of the fear of the Lord as the binder, as in medicines, that fills in all the gaps 
between our faith in Christ and our love for God. I think of the fear of the Lord placing our hearts and minds squarely between God's omnipotence, his all-power, and his omniscience, his all-knowingness, filling in all of that space. The fear of God sort of incorporates this reality that God knows everything. Have you thought about he knows every single thing that ever happened in the history of reality? Anywhere, at any time, in any era, that is a fearful thing. And this fear of God has this effect. I hope it's helpful for you as it has been for me. In light of that, then, let's seek to get a more thorough understanding of how the fear of the Lord blesses the redeemed church. First, through a holy compulsion and vulnerability. Verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Now, some of your versions, as I mentioned earlier, are going to say the terror of the Lord here in verse 11. And again, these words are quite intense. Truthfully, they really are. And Paul's doing two things here right off the bat, and they both involve two dimensions. So here they are. The first thing, he's establishing his ministry firmly on the triune Godhead. And therefore, he, Paul, views his gospel labor with ultimate seriousness. If you believe that Almighty God, the true God, the real God, has called you to do something, you're going to do that with passion, with commitment, with vigor, with earnestness, and as much as is in you by the grace of God, integrity and honor. And two, the apostle is eminently confident in Christ, totally secure in Jesus, and he hopes that the Corinthians, this congregation he had helped found a few years earlier in Corinth, would behold this in him too, this credibility. There's, it's very helpful in life and ministry to know your standing with God in Christ. When this is the situation, when you really do know your standing with God in Christ, the Holy Spirit confirms with your spirit that you are children of God, Romans 8. You're faithful in the covenant, in a strong, faithful church that tells you things sometimes you don't want to hear, but you're willing to hear it because the Bible says and you want to hear the whole counsel of God. Then you should know this wonderful assurance, this sense of security that Paul had. Paul was still a sinner, just like us. He was still in the sanctification mode. I press on. I haven't attained to it, he says in Philippians 2. I press on to the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And that's where we are. When you're in that position, though, you can withstand all the discouragements and oppositions that come your way. And there'll be plenty of them, aren't there? All you true saints know. There are plenty of them. Challenges, difficulties, hardships, unforeseen circumstances, things that come your way. I would argue that the Apostle Paul would not know any of this or be confident at all in Christ if he did not have this deep-seated fear of the Lord or terror of the Lord which compelled him to persuade others. 
Because Paul was so secure in Christ, he was able to be vulnerable in Jesus. Isn't that interesting? It's when we're actually secure in Jesus that now we're able to be honest. We can be ourselves, strip off the masks. No parading or charading. No games. Just who we are, as we are. Even if others won't accept that, we're still okay because we're secure in Jesus. We're not looking for other people's approval or applause. That's a hard thing, dear saints. You understand that everyone outside of Christ lives their entire life trying to please other people. And actually, we are created to please persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're the only persons, and as we do, we will indeed be useful in his kingdom. We'll be secure in ourselves, and we'll be a blessing to others, and we'll be able to be honorable and honest. Paul knew who and what he was, and here's the thing. He was going to be who and what he was, whether the Corinthians embraced him or not. If the Corinthians had made the huge mistake of saying, no, Paul, we don't like you, you don't speak well enough, you're not flashy enough, we like the false apostle Judaizers better, they throw in a little law, make us feel good, hey, we've done something, contributed to our own salvation. Had they done that, Paul would have been disappointed. Wouldn't change the thing in Paul. He would have continued to be a faithful minister to the end of his days and call the church back to Jesus in repentance. But he did sincerely hope that other Christians, particularly the Corinthian congregation, would do that, would embrace him, which is is good. And he was a human being, he had feelings, he cared. So he wanted them, even though he had to chastise them, correct them, set the record right with them, he still wanted them to love him in a, in a God-honoring way. But he wasn't going to compromise the truth for that or anything else. Now, you and I may live this way too, dears, but only through a sincere, hearty faith in Jesus Christ, our Redeemer and Lord. So we're looking at how the fear of the Lord blesses the redeemed church through a holy compulsion and vulnerability and through providing a powerful antidote to deception, verses 12 and 13. Children, antidote is a cure, if you will. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. So let's look at these two verses. I think verse 12 is referring to the aforementioned Judaizers, these false apostles who were seeking to win the Corinthians over, steal them from Jesus and from Paul's work, and make them a synagogue of Satan, a place of works. Works righteousness, law, self, deeds, doing things, earning God's favor. The very thing that the Reformation so powerfully refuted. 
They wanted to discredit the real Apostle Paul. Oh, who's he? Oh, isn't he usually in jail or in prison somewhere? What's so special about him? Now, verse 13, I think, is Paul's way of saying something like this. Look, whatever we, i.e. he himself and his presbyterial comrades are, is for the glory of God and for your, the church's good. Whatever we are is for God's glory and the church's good. And that kind of spirit is strong medicine that fights off the contagion of errant or heretical theology and practice. Is it, a, is it based on heartfelt commitment to God's true apostles and ministers? Yes, it is. But that shouldn't surprise us or shock us. Did you know that? I told you earlier you have to have an honest minister. That should surprise us or shock us? No. Because Jesus said essentially the same thing. High priestly prayer, John 17, 18 through 21. Those who would hear me, he said, will hear you. Those who reject me, they'll reject you too. And it's 100% accurate through all the ages. Now, Paul did not need to, quote, commend himself to anyone, even the Corinthians. By now they should have known everything they needed to know about the great apostle. But their spiritual welfare would largely hinge on whether they would opt for him in Christ Jesus and the true gospel, or for the false apostle Judaizers and the false gospel of law and works and hell and sin and damnation. How the fear of the Lord blesses the redeemed church. Through a holy compulsion and vulnerability, through providing a powerful antidote to deception, and finally through clearly defining the gospel and our proper response to it. Verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now, dears, please understand, first of all, right off the bat, that the word all, employed three times in these two verses, is not a reference to all people indiscriminately. It is rather a reference to all elect, redeemed people. And understand there are elect people that are not yet redeemed. So when Paul's talking all here, he's not teaching universal atonement, or that everyone's saved. He's talking about the true saints of the church, or those who will be gathered into it in time and space. Now, obviously, we should and do know this, but I think it's still necessary to say it. Now, having cleared all that up, we may behold that what the Apostle is teaching us here is that because Christ died for his church, we all died, and with him we correspondingly are all made alive in him. So we can't live in Christ without dying. We are crucified with him so that we are risen with him, Galatians 2.20. We, quote, no longer live for ourselves, verse 15, but for him, Christ, who for our sake died and was raised from the dead. Now, all of this is gospel doctrine and life. The two go together. And what's particularly beautiful about the way Paul introduces this heavenly glory is the way he opened verse 14, and I quote him again, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. Now, isn't that interesting? The fear of God 
compelled him to persuade others. And now the love of Christ controls him because we have concluded this. And he goes into that lovely description of the good news, how the forgiven church is united to Jesus in his life and in his death. So at the end of this wonderful passage of Holy Scripture, which was our passage for today, the fear of God and the love of Christ coalesce and embrace and kiss in our Lord Jesus, and we will pursue that point a little more in our application section. So let's do that now. And consider why the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ are united. Now these two forces actually can never be separated as I was preparing this sermon, I determined that I'm even willing to venture on teaching you this morning that in heaven itself, we will still be fearing God perfectly, even as we are still loving God perfectly. And the reason for that is we are created contingent beings. God alone is eternal and infinite. We will always be created contingent beings. We will always be in a space-time continuum. We will always have continuity. We will always be at the well of God's infinite grace, wonder, mercy, kindness, sovereignty, power. We will be marveling at it for all eternity. And how, if we do that, can we not have this holy fear of God? I think it will be there. I've never heard anybody else say it, but if I'm a heretic, I'm in trouble, I guess. But I don't think I am a heretic, because all of this is in Christ Jesus. Now, the reason for all this is because we are, again, created beings. If that wasn't the case, well, everything would be different, but only Christ, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, are infinite beings. So let us now try our very best in Jesus to grasp why the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ are united. First, because... Both of them are necessary in order to cast off error. In this world, this is a major feature of these two blessed truths. Love without fear would be soft. Fear without love would be tyrannical. But more than that, if we lack love for God in Christ and or fear of God through Christ's atonement, we would be gobbled up, eaten alive by heretics and heresies. And that is a fate worse than death. Well, almost. Really horrible. And we use the term cast off in this point for good reason. In truth, this throwing off of error is what we do. You come to church every Sunday, hear the sermon, and you cast off errors. You're right now just throwing them off. This tradition, that passion, this feeling, this sensitivity, this error, this thing that doesn't coordinate with the scripture, what God's holy word is and says, we're casting off error. We achieve this as the love of Christ and the fear of God course through the spiritual veins of our new man, who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ, putting him on and getting the old man off. And this is why Paul wrote what he did in today's scripture lesson and why he insists on it so often in all his epistles, and so did the other authors of Holy Scripture. There is freedom in truth, dears, and Jesus Christ is the personification of truth. And you may have total, complete liberation of your souls in Jesus Christ, casting off error. Why the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ are united? 
Because both of them are necessary in order to cast off the air, and both of them characterize authentic regeneration. You will know that you're born again or regenerated in Christ, not by trying to force yourself to believe some cheap form of religion, even of the Christian religion. Instead, you will know you're a new creature in Christ through your discernment of your most prominent love. Ask yourself right now, what is your most prominent love? And through your apprehension given by the Holy Spirit of who God is, his character, which will fill you with holy fear. Now you might be saying, I don't love God as much as I should. Understood. The question is, do you love God at all? And if you do, this is a sure sign of regeneration. But your happiness, your growth, and your prosperity in Christ will all be tied to your growing love for God in Christ. That will drive everything. Your obedience, your life, your passion, what you do, who you are, what you're excited about. And that will be your life and your freedom. And dears, you're going to come to this knowledge in the stressful furnace of being a new heavenly creature in Christ who lives in a world that is diametrically opposed to everything you stand for, who you are. And i got to tell you as your pastor, that is really difficult. It is a hard environment to live in. Some of you and all of you in Christ are going to be finding your hearts torn apart. Things are going to happen to you that are just going to feel like you're being ripped open. But what's really happening, dear saints, is that you're dying to your old self, the world, the flesh, the devil, and all the false values of a decrepit, dead, corrupted realm of fallen life on earth. That's a good thing. So when you're being torn apart in your hearts this week in Christ Jesus, it's tough. I'm telling you, it's really hard. And the, and the damned, they don't have this. You know, the unbelievers, they don't experience it. You do, though. It's hard. Encourage one another, but press on in your most holy faith. The two graces of love for God in Christ and fear of God in Christ conspire together to help you get through those humanly impossible, trying sanctification experiences. The love of God in Christ and the fear of God in Christ. Let me encourage you today, dears, to freshen anew. Come to Jesus. Come to his cross. Come to the empty tomb. See the glory Behold him in heaven, the risen, ascended Christ. Set your minds on things above, not on things on earth. Look to him. Behold him in his glory. Take upon him his very, yourself his very being. Bear his cross. Suffer for him. Glory in him. Triumph in him. Live for Him. Rejoice in Him. Give grateful praise to Him for all that He's done for you. The Spirit of God will apply the merits of Jesus to your heart, filling you with unspeakable joy and full of glory. We talked about the suffering. How about the, the glory? 
And we're talking in this world. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. Those who will engage this Christ with faithfulness. The holy fear and love of God. All of this will be through your God-given faith and your Redeemer's blood, sacrifice, and triumphant resurrection. Beloved of God, the results of the fear of the Lord are not easy and they're not simple, but they're all good. Though difficult, we should be very truly and sincerely happy for the results of the fear of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for that because... If someone wasn't filled with holy fear, he would never have preached that gospel in the first century, as the Apostle Paul never planted any churches, never persevered, never endured through all that he did. And yet you've always had a people that would do that in the clergy and in the parish. We thank you for that. And on this Reformation Sunday, we recognize your faithfulness to us in Christ Jesus and give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.